If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Hello and welcome back to The Savvy Psychologist. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and every week I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. From Bill Cosby, to Bill O'Reilly, to basically all of Uber, to Harvey Weinstein, sexual harassment is as rampant as it is repugnant. And we wonder, what are they thinking? How could anyone do that? But aside from a few legal team filtered statements, we don't have much of an insight into the mind of accused harassers. So this week, let's examine the psychology of sexual harassment. And to start off, let's define exactly what we're talking about. So what is sexual harassment? Well, a common myth is that sexual harassment is just a few steps down the continuum from sexual assault. But it's not that simple. What specifies sexual harassment is that it's tied to power structures in employment and career advancement. The harasser holds the keys and creates a catch-22 for the victim. Either submit and be exploited, or resist and be punished. It's a no-win situation of power, control, and intimidation. Therefore, sexual harassment can and does include demeaning comments, requests for sexual favors, unwanted sexual advances, but importantly, can also include sexual assault, which is any non-consensual or coerced sexual act, including sexual touching. Okay, harassment is also different than unwanted sexual attention, which consists of unwelcome come-ons and comments that are not primarily designed to demean and intimidate. Think terrible pickup lines. Therefore, do you work at a subway? Because you just gave me a footlong from a guy at the bar is unwanted sexual attention, but from your boss, it's sexual harassment. To be sure, it's not always women as victims, men as perpetrators, even though that is the vast majority of the cases. In 2016, of the almost 13,000 charges of sexual harassment logged by the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, widely regarded as the tip of the iceberg, 83% of them were filed by women. And women who face sexual harassment by bosses and supervisors aren't just rising Hollywood starlets or Yale-educated lawyers who once worked for Supreme Court nominees. They're restaurant workers, clerks, flight attendants, students, healthcare workers, programmers, and any of millions of other everyday workers whose bosses control scheduling, raises, promotions, and references. So who are these bosses? Who sexually harasses? I dug through the research and found four common characteristics of the mostly men who sexually harass mostly women. And here they are. Characteristic number one 
is the Dark Triad. And with a name like the Dark Triad, you can bet this is a doozy of a personality trait. Actually, it's three in one. Narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. Now, you've definitely heard of the first two. Narcissism is a grandiose view of one's own talents, coupled with a lack of empathy and a deep need for admiration. Narcissists don't care if you like them, but they do need you to think they're powerful and impressive. Now, narcissists might justify sexual harassment if they think they've been deprived of a sexual experience they, quote, deserve. They can't fathom that someone just isn't that into them. Next, psychopathy revolves around two things, fearless dominance and aggressive impulsivity. In other words, psychopaths are bold, manipulative exploiters. They also have no empathy, but are good at mimicking it in order to exploit their victims. Psychopaths sexually harass simply because they want to. If the opportunity presents itself, or they create the opportunity, they'll take full advantage. And finally, there's Machiavellianism, named for the Italian Renaissance politician Niccolo Machiavelli. His masterwork, The Prince, describes an unscrupulous, deceptive political philosophy with an eye on long-term goals at any cost. So put it all together, and you essentially get a gleeful enthusiasm for exploitation, deception, and manipulation, combined with a callous blindness to the feelings of others, all tied together with a bow of grandiosity. In other words, a perfect recipe for sexual harassment. And indeed, in a study of almost 2,000 everyday community members, researchers found that, unsurprisingly, each of the three dark triad characteristics added to a tendency to sexually harass others. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Okay, so after that palate cleanser, now back to the psychology of sexual harassment. Characteristic number two is moral disengagement. And this is another doozy. Moral disengagement is a slippery slope by which people justify their own corruption. It's a cognitive process by which individuals create their own version of reality where moral principles don't apply to them. Now, moral disengagement was first proposed by the psychologist Albert Bandura, who is often called the greatest living psychologist. His theory, as applied to sexual harassment, has several parts. So first comes moral justification, or portraying harassment as acceptable. So think of Harvey Weinstein's line, I came of age in the 60s and 70s when all the rules about behavior and workplaces were different. Next is euphemistic labeling, or using sanitized substitutions for naming their behavior, like Bill Cosby's characterization of his sexual assaults as rendezvous. Third is displacement of responsibility, which attributes the harassment to outside forces, like Weinstein's That Was the Culture Then. Then there's advantageous comparison, which is the assertion that their behavior could have been worse, and distortion of consequences, where individuals minimize the harm wrought by their actions. Finally, there's dehumanization and attribution of blame, which respectively eliminate concern for the victim and blame her for the incident. Bill O'Reilly did this when he commented that a woman who was raped and killed was, quote, moronic because she was wearing a miniskirt and a halter top and that, quote, every predator in the world is going to pick that up. The end result? Harassers sleep well at night because, through moral disengagement, 
they rest assured that what they did was within the realm of normalcy, deserved, and didn't cause any harm. The mind is a tricky thing. Often, we choose our behavior to match our values. But sometimes, through moral disengagement, we change our values to justify our behavior. This is how sexual harassers can maintain their view of themselves as decent, even morally upstanding people. Next, characteristic number three is working in a male-dominated field. Sexual harassment is well-documented to be more prevalent in traditionally masculine fields, like the military, the police, surgery, finance, and more recently, high-tech and the upper echelons of the entertainment industry. This goes back decades. A classic 1989 study of 100 female factory workers found that women who worked as machinists, a position dominated by men, reported being harassed significantly more often than women who worked on the assembly line, which was more gender equal. And finally, characteristic number four is hostile attitudes towards women. Now, even though psychology is a science, it's not a totally objective field, in most part because research is done by people, and people are a product of their culture and the biases of a given place and time. So interestingly, while researching this episode, I found a study on sexual harassment from the early 1980s, so almost a decade prior to Anita Hill's testimony at Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings, that stated that most male sexual harassers had no idea that their advances were unwanted. The conclusion was that people who engaged in sexual harassment were simply clueless and lovelorn. But now we know better. For instance, a 2012 study out of the University of Bielefeld in Germany tested whether harassment was driven by what the researchers called a short-term mating orientation, which is basically an academic euphemism for love them and leave them, or was driven by something called hostile sexism, and therefore served less as a way to get sex and more as a way to intimidate women. So the researchers asked 100 heterosexual male college students to chat online with Julia, an attractive 23-year-old woman. With each chat exchange, participants were asked to choose among three different pre-written messages to send to Julia. The men were also told that this was a memory test, that Julia would later be quizzed on recalling the messages they sent to her, and that previous studies had found gender differences in memory performance, thus creating an atmosphere of competition. For each message, the men chose among a joke, a personal comment, and a neutral statement. Now, some of the exchanges were carefully calibrated to include opportunities to harass. For example, in one combination, the choice included a sexist joke not specifically about Julia. What's the difference between a woman having her period and a terrorist? With a terrorist, you can negotiate. It also included a sexist remark directed specifically towards Julia. One of those terrible pickup lines. You're a sweet chocolate and I've got the filling for you. Thankfully, there was also a neutral statement. Simply, you seem like a cheerful person. Participants chose one of the messages to send and then repeated this over 20 different trials. The results found that the choice to send the pickup lines hung together with approving attitudes about short-term sexual encounters. The men who were more likely to send the bad pickup lines were also more likely to agree with statements like, sex without love is okay, or I would consider having sex with a stranger if it was safe and she was attractive. Now, the guys who chose to send sexist jokes also scored highly on the short-term sexual attitudes questionnaire. But there was something else. They also scored highly on a questionnaire of hostile sexism, 
endorsing items like women are too easily offended and the world would be a better place if women supported men more and criticized them less. In other words, sexual motives predicted unwanted sexual attention, but hostile motives predicted both unwanted sexual attention and gender harassment. The researchers concluded that choosing to send the jokes wasn't about sex at all. Instead, it was about creating a disparaging, hostile climate for Julia in the context of a competitive atmosphere. Okay, so a good litmus test for whether comments are sexist or really just a joke is to ask, would I say this to a man? This is a good test for statements that might get defended by a harasser as harmless fun or what, I can't even give a compliment? For instance, a male supervisor wouldn't tell a man that he should smile more, comment on the attractiveness of his body, or say, you don't have to get all emotional about it. To sum it all up, harassment indicates a willingness to exploit and manipulate as a way to maintain or gain power. It indicates a callousness towards the victim and aims to, quote, keep them in their place. Hopefully, with all the attention given to sexual harassment, more victims and more bystanders will speak up and speak out, and someday, harassers will find that their place is exactly nowhere. On a completely different note, I have some news for you. As you know, I have a special place in my heart for social anxiety. It's not only my favorite challenge to treat in the clinic, it's also something I experienced myself for many years. And as part of my job, but also in my life, I've learned how to turn social anxiety around. Therefore, for all of us who are quiet, introverted, shy, or socially anxious, I'm putting together a trove of resources. So head over to the brand new ellenhendrickson.com and get the first of many. Seven Myths Social Anxiety Wants You to Believe and How to Bust Them. Every day for seven days, I'll send you daily exercises to help you rise above social anxiety, all with the evidence-based research, actionable tips, and eye-rolling humor you've come to expect from the podcast. So check out ellenhendrickson.com, put in your email, and every other week, I'll send you free resources to quiet social anxiety and build your confidence. I have lots planned. Quizzes, original articles you won't find on the podcast, interviews with luminaries in the field, and a lot more. As for the savvy psychologist, don't worry. Everything you love about the podcast is staying the same. Speaking of which, never miss a thing when you sign up for the newsletter at quickanddirtytips.com newsletters or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. You can always listen on Spotify, follow the show on Twitter at QDT Savvy Psych, or like on Facebook, where there are always links to episodes no longer available on Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and as always, the Savvy Psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and doesn't substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. Have a wonderful week. I will see you all next Friday for a happier, healthier mind. Are you tired of the constant battle with anxiety and panic? I've got a podcast that I think you'll love. It's called the Anxiety Coaches Podcast, where the host, Gina, gives you your weekly dose of tranquility and inspiration. Two new episodes drop weekly, packed with practical tips and lifestyle changes to help you calm that racing heart and bring peace back into your life. So if you're ready to bid farewell to sleepless nights and constant worry, tune into 
the Anxiety Coaches Podcast, and embark on a journey towards lasting calmness and a life free from anxiety's grip. Remember, it's not just a podcast, it's a lifeline. Join Gina on the Anxiety Coaches Podcast and let her soothing words be the balm your nervous system needs. Listen in and start your path to healing today. The Anxiety Coaches Podcast.com because healing begins the first time you listen.